Well, that's one of them. I encourage you, if you're able, on uh, Sunday mornings, we pray at 9.30 prior to the service, and uh, we'd love for you to come be a part of that time. really believe that's where it's at. That's where God uh, meets us and does His great work is as we pray. And uh, so we encourage you, if you can, come out and be with us uh, as, you're, as you're able. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to resume and as we've been uh, studying in 1 Corinthians. And uh, we'll begin there at verse number 16, 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. And we'll look at uh, verses 16 through the end of this chapter. And there the Bible says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Let's pray again. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this testimony of life, and uh, community, and grace, and how you work in uh, connection with us. We pray, Father, that you will open our ears, and our understanding, and Please help your word to resonate and to find uh, space in our life so that it can direct us in thinking about the kind of people that you have called us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, some things that happen to you in life are formative. And for me, high school was uh, an experience, probably like for most people, that was really formative. When I was in high school, you went to um, homeroom first. I don't know how it works now because it's been a while. But you would go to homeroom. The homeroom teacher had never taught me at all. You just went there until you went to your other classes. But you were with those people uh, all the way through, you know, high school. They, it was alphabetical, so you got to know the people that were pretty close to you and uh, their last by last name. And uh, you discovered one of the things you find in in schools. There's a social pecking order, right? I mean, that's how it was when I was in school. I'm assuming that because human nature is what it is, it's probably, you know, still exactly that way. But it was based on, you know, a lot of times athletics and uh, uh, appearance, good, whether you're good looking or not, you know, uh, or, or whether you had some certain, you know, charisma, whatever it was that gave you, you know, an attractiveness. And then, everybody got sort of classified and you hung out or were isolated from people on the basis of, you know, kind of external things it seemed like to me at the time. And I sort of, you know, if I'm honest, didn't like it at all. I didn't like cliques. I didn't like the status and the tiers, levels of acceptance. And it formed my life in a way that made me just not appreciate clicks and you know the idea that of the divisiveness that sometimes happens because of um, the social dynamics that occur and you know it it caused some people to be isolated from other people it's it caused those you know forces 
caused some people not to be accepted and led into the center. So that you always felt sort of awkward. You know, I know that's not always caused by social uh, situations, but often it is. You know, so you ended up isolated. And isolated is the word, you know, for a time like ours where over the last two years, whoever thought, I remember listening to people when COVID first started and the disruption began and we thought, well, we'll be, you know, at the time it was early March and they said, well, by Easter, you know, this will have run its course and we'll be back to normal. But here we are two years later, you know, with different variants, and it constantly is uh, disruptive and causes people to be isolated. You know, they even talk about that. If you, if you get it, you have to what? Self-isolate. You have to keep yourself away from other people. And like my um, mother-in-law is 92 in assisted living, and man, it's horrible, horrible for people in nursing homes or in uh, assisted living and, of course, you know, uh, the idea is we need to really protect people because it can be deadly if the, you know, virus gets into a place like that. But, but it uh, affects people, this isolation in, in terms of um, depression. You know, when you study the sociological implications of isolation, generally depression, anxiety, uh, addiction. You know, these are a lot of times the fallout that uh, is a part of isolation, high blood pressure, health issues that people have, and mental health issues. So when you read the passage, you're like, what does that have to do with this? Well, it has a lot to do with it, because when we look at this uh, passage, one of the things that it's trying to help us see is that church ought never to be a place where anybody feels isolated. It was never in God's plan that the church was a place where somebody thought, nobody knows me. I'm, you know, not part of the clique. I don't fit. I'm an outsider, a nobody. That was never God's plan for congregational life. His plan was about belonging. It was to bring us in. It was to create, you know, eternal intimacy and connection that was his purpose and is his purpose even now one reason that Jesus died one reason was for connection for relationships you know the big of course reason that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead was to eradicate the problem that we have caused by sin the Bible says every person sins and comes short of the glory of God and there's not one righteous person not even one So that Jesus came, the only righteous human, the only perfect human to die for all the imperfect, sinful people, to bring us into connection with God, to reconcile us and to bring us to God. And so he he connects us. And so part of God's purpose in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, yes, obviously was to deal with the problem of sin, but it was also to create community, to create create connection, to create something unique in all of the world, a family that you could belong to, that you wouldn't feel isolated and alone. That was deep in God's heart when he he made the church as community and when Christ came for us. So what this passage shows us really clearly, as we'll see, is that anything that militates against God's uh, desire, for connection and community 
and creating that holy community will meet with God's strong opposition. We saw what the passage says. You're the temple of God. Anybody that destroys or defiles the temple, it says God will destroy that person. That's how deeply this idea of connection resonates in the heart of God. He says anybody that does something that messes up the community, I'm going to interfere in their life. They'll know, they'll know that I'm, I'm the Lord. And so... It's a really serious issue, it's, and it tells us something about what God is like, how God feels about people, and how God feels about the seriousness of us not being isolated, of us not being left out, of us not being alone. So let's look at this passage, and we'll see where this idea comes from. Connection, of, of course, first, as we're saying, is incredibly important to God. We see it in uh, Scripture that... Uh, People got alienated because of sin. That's what sin does. It, cr- it creates aloneness, separateness. When the first people disobeyed God, you remember what happened? What'd they do? They go and hide from God, right? They start to experience alienation. And, but what does God do? Does God leave them alone? No. He goes and pursues them. And he says, where are you? Why have you hidden? And, he, and God restores in a process of time and experience, the relationship that existed, God made people to be in fellowship with him. So God pursues that and he, he uh, carries that you know, on. But when you read this passage, there's something interesting. You can read it incorrectly because it says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But if you don't you know, see what it's really saying, it's second person plural. Now, English was good to be in school. I understood English. I didn't understand math at all, you know, but I understood English. Second person plural, in the South we'd say it, y'all, right? You all. So that's who it's talking about. It's talking about y'all, you all. It's talking about a corporate temple. Now, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God has come to live inside of you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what this passage says. What it says is you all, congregation, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live among you because if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is living in you. So you all brought him here together in you all, in yourself. But the the scripture here really says... Do you not know that you, congregation of saints and believers, are the sanctuary of God? We've talked about this idea before, that facilities give us a place to come to, but it's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is human beings who have come to be right with their Savior and Master, so that God makes us the sanctuary. Back then, they built elaborate temple complexes that, you know, you can travel over to the Holy Land or, you know, to some of the ancient places, and you can see the ruins that are there where they they were so elaborate that even now you can see vestiges or, you know, parts that, that still remain thousands and thousands of years later. And the idea of the temple was that it represented God. That it pointed people to God. But now the Bible says you, you're the temple. You point people to God. I point people to God together, collectively. That's what we do. 
We're the temple. We point people to God. And so that's the, when you read this passage, that's how you have to read it to understand it properly. It's not saying you individually. Just That's a very Western, you know, reading of this passage. It's not what it's saying. It's saying you all, congregation. You're the temple of God. One of my professors in Bible college used to say, now abide these three, context, context, and context, he would say. And the greatest of these is what? Context, <laughs> because it's all you're left with. So when you read the Bible, you know, of course, that's what you have to think about is what's the context here? It's not, you know, a lot of times we'll prove text and isolate something and make it mean something it didn't mean. But here the Bible is, has a context. So you have to go back into the earlier chapters and things that we've read, and one thing you see is it said before, I hear about your congregation, Paul said, that there are divisions among you. And some of you say, I belong to uh, Cephas, Simon Peter, is who, who that, when you read that in this passage, it's talking about Simon Peter. That was the, uh, his Greek name. Or some would say, I'm of Apollos. And we remember that Apollos, if you read the Bible, was a great orator. So he would have attracted people to his personality. And some people would say, I'm of Paul, P-A-U-L, the writer of 1 Corinthians, the founder of the Corinthian church. And he, he defends himself. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you except for maybe one family or two families. So that nobody should be saying, I'm a Paul follower. It's like, I didn't come to make Paul followers, or uh, Apollos didn't come to make Apollos followers. They came to make people followers of Jesus. So the context is, he says, I hear that there is division among you. And he'll ask, is Christ divided? Christ isn't divided. That's what he implies. But the context is how we understand this passage and as we read it you see it because he mentions it again uh, in verse number um, 20 and 20 uh, 21 22 where he says everything belongs to you which we'll get into but he says don't be boasting about men don't identify yourself in cliques or subgroups based on your attachment or attention to some human he says, that's not what this is about. It's not about that at all. It's about Christ, and it's about his presence among us, uniting us, making you belong, taking away your isolation. He says, that's why he uses this very strong language. He says, do you not know he asked that? Don't you know? You should know. That's what he's implying that putting up barriers between people in community is fundamentally contrary to Christ. He says anything that you do, anything that we do in community that puts up walls between people is contrary to Christ. So he's, he's getting back to that topic of divisiveness and he's saying collectively you are the the sanctuary that God comes to live in among you so divisiveness is disruptive and destructive and God will not stand idly by while his work it becomes a shambles because of what humans do he says I won't be idle when that's occurring in congregational life I'll oppose that I'll destroy the person that 
causes disruption and destruction. The, the uh, idea of the Spirit of God dwelling in us is very important in this passage. The indwelling Spirit of God, it, it's what makes a person a Christian or not. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. It's a pivotal idea. It says there, but you are not merely flesh or in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it, listen to what it says, he is not his. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it's a, the a same way of saying the Holy Spirit, he is not his. This is talking about belonging. Really, the whole passage, I think, has that idea of belonging. Do we belong to God? How do you know? Does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? If so, you belong to God. If not, you don't belong to God. If we don't have the Spirit, it says we do not belong to God. So let's think about that. That's an important idea. Has the Spirit come to live in your life? The Holy Spirit of God that the Bible talks about. How would you know? Well, how would you not know, I think, is a better way of uh, thinking. about How would you not know if the Holy Spirit of God came to animate you and give you life? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, the Bible says. Behold, all things become new. How would you not know that you'd been made new? You know, the Bible says the Spirit of God, this is the creative power of the universe. How would you not know that he'd come to live in you? That your life was now uniquely different than it was before. I knew when he came. Because he began to change me and is still changing me today. Not only my destiny, he did change my destiny. And I'm grateful for that. That he's changed, I have a home that's eternal. Not made by hands, that God made. And I'm, I'm grateful that God has done that. But he's done so, uh, a lot more than that as well. The Bible says if the Holy Spirit lives in you, he animates you. He comforts. He, he's called, one of his names is the comforter. If we have the Holy Spirit, we have the comfort that comes from God. One of the ways that this, you know the Spirit came to live in, uh, the, the Bible becomes a book that you can understand. Because the Spirit who I I inspired it now lives in you. So you read that. I'm not saying it's not a difficult book. It is a difficult book. But if the one who inspired it lives inside of you, it makes all the difference in the world when you sit down to read it. One of the ways we know the Spirit of God has come to live inside of us is spiritual realities begin to take form for us that we wouldn't have understood before without the Holy Spirit. He witnesses, the Bible says. How do you know the Spirit of God lives in you? Because the Holy Spirit identifies believers to believers. The Scripture says that His Spirit lives in me, lives in you. I've had the opportunity to go many, many places around the world, and you meet brothers and sisters that immediately there's an identification in their profession and in their life that you're knit together because the Spirit who created the world lives in you and lives in them. And no matter where you are, they're your brother and they're your sister. And, you know, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will animate, He'll give life, He'll cause us to identify with each other and as family. It's like I, we had our family reunion at George L. Smith State Park, and I went to uh, see, this was the first time, like, my cousins, all, and it was about 60 people that were there since our grandparents had died a couple of decades before. It was the first time we'd been together, but I knew them. 
They were my family. When you get a bunch of Braswells together, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, that's a Braswell. He looks like every other Braswell that I know. Yeah, there's that family, that kinship, and the Bible says that's what the Spirit produces in us. He, he causes us to know that we're family, we're with family. And, and the Scripture talks about Him sealing us he, as a deposit, a surety. The Bible says the Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. How do I know the Spirit of God comes to live in us? He gives us assurance. Not assurance based on our performance, assurance based on the fact that it's just like we're family. The Holy Spirit of God resonates in our life that he's, he's given us a, an assurance. The, it uses the word deposit in uh, 2 Corinthians. The Spirit is the deposit given into your life. It's as if, uh, if you've ever purchased a home, for example, they have you put down what they call it, earnest money, right? Because they don't want you backing out. There's a crossing over where it's like, we're serious now. I put money in this. The Bible says the deposit of the Spirit has been placed into your heart. And it's God's way of nailing down this contract that happened in the blood of Jesus. That He shed his blood. He made us part of his, his family. So if the Holy Spirit lives in our life, all these uh, realities are true about us. He has given us this, this uh, deposit. He helps us in our praying, the Bible says, so that sometimes when I'm praying, I'm, uh, we may be grieved and not know appropriately how to pray. We may be tired and not really feel like praying. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit uh, will pray through us in utterances that can't really even be put into words. The Spirit prays through us. The, the Bible says if the Holy Spirit lives in us, he teaches, he counsels, he directs. In the book of Acts, the apostles are uh, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And at one point it says the Spirit forbade them to go and preach the gospel in the province of Asia. Not that the, God didn't want the gospel to go there, but this was like not his timing. So he closes the door and he makes it obvious. So God directs in our life. As we pray and we listen, if we care about following him, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is given to us to, to help us. He's a helper. So if the Holy Spirit lives in us, then these are some of the ways that we'll understand that. The Holy Spirit is personal. You know, sometimes we, we try to understand God's personality and he's not an it you know, we say it, it did this or that, but it's the Holy Spirit is a person because God is personal. He has the attributes of personality. So he feels, he can be grieved, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit can be grieved or quenched. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is a person. He has the qualities and attributes of personality and he's part of the triune nature of God. I'm not going to try to you know, gives a, a full, you know, orb theology about God's personality. But the Bible says he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All God. And that the Holy Spirit is fully God. And so when we think about what the Bible is talking about with the Holy Spirit, he is the foundation, the basis of community. Because he lives in you all, if he does live in you all. He, he comes to live in those who surrender to Jesus, who place their faith in him. 
And we are His temple. We are. Not this facility, even though this facility is, is you know, in the process of becoming more awesome. <laughs> you know, but this facility is not the temple of God. You are. You, the human that God comes to live in. Then function in, in relationship with the other people around you. So that's God's purpose. That's God's plan. Think about what sanctuary, because it's the way that this word sometimes gets translated, suggests. What are you, when I hear the word sanctuary, it just sounds safe to me. It sounds safe. That's what God intended. He didn't intend for it to communicate something off-putting. He intended for it to communicate the idea, that, hey, welcome, come in. This is your home. So we're, we should be at home with each other. The scripture says in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Safe. That's the idea here. It's a sovereign thought. Think about this, that the Bible says that the God who created everything lives in you. Lives in me. Isn't that overwhelming to think about? That the God who... Before there was anything, spoke everything into existence, says, I'm also coming to make my home inside of you. John 14, 23, if anybody loves me and keeps my word, I will come to him and make my home inside of him. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know. You know, it blows my mind to think that the God who created everything also lives in me. He'll, he lives in anyone who trusts in Christ. It's a sobering thought. It's a comforting thought thought as well because think about the fact that he he is that power is present for transformation among among us to lead us to maturity and to cause us to grow into the likeness of Jesus together the bible says god is among us building a spiritual house that's uh what it says in uh first uh peter chapter 2 verse 5 He's building us into a spiritual house. He fits us together. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21 says, fits us together. So it's like he takes you and me. So he might pick us up and say, man, I'm going to have to knock off some rough edges to make this fit. Goes to work on us. Puts us where we belong. But we've got to keep that idea in our mind that this is what God's doing. He's making community. Community is where it's at. In God's understanding. So he fits us together. He puts us together. And God loves his church more than he loves your pet objective. He loves his church more than he loves my pet objective. He wants community. He wants it built up and in us. And he, he wants to keep working at the things that divide us. So nothing should contribute to people feeling left out or alienated or isolated or alone. Our relationships should be free of malice. This is just gets down to where, you know, life is when we're together because stuff happens between human beings. Uh, conflict happens and disagreement happens and God says, you know what, I don't care. I'm still My intent is still the same. It's still to make you a representation. You're the temple that when people look at it, they say, that is what God is like. That's what God's like. What those people are like when they're together, that's what God is like. That's what he means in this passage. 
So nothing should contribute to the idea that anybody feels alone. It should always be something that we're working against. That we've, we should work hard to be a healthy representation of God to the world around us. So I think about that with people. You know, the only way that we can affect this is to talk to each other, right? How, how can it be, and it often is, that we're together for years and years and years, but we don't really even know each other? That doesn't sound like community to me. Community means I know you, you know me. The, the relationships have heft. They, have, they, they matter. That's what this is supposed to be, that the relationships matter. We know each other. We, we ask, as you ask questions, you will rarely meet a human being that doesn't like talking about themselves, by the way. So you ask questions. Tell me about yourself. I heard an interviewer say that's the best way to have conversations with people that you don't know. Tell me about yourself. And then you're off, you know, because there's so much about yourself that you know, you know, and you can talk about. Good opening question. Tell me about yourself. But God, I think God is saying we, bri- we need to bridge the distance. We need to find out. It's your responsibility to find out, to, to be connected. God uh, wants us out of our comfort zones. I know some of you are introverts. I know you are, you know. People have to try harder with you. But w- this is God's purpose is for us to be in community. To be connected, for it to matter, for it to be real. Make, uh, we need to move toward people that we don't know all that well. And to close up the gaps. So connection is important as God you know, has a purpose for the uh, congregation, for the, church, for the church, it's a spiritual community. But also secondly, connection subordinates our will to God's will. What God thinks about this is way more important than what anybody else thinks. And this is what he says in his word about it. He, he, uh, he says, let no one be deceived. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself is actually what it says. If anyone among you seems to be wise, he's still talking about the same thing. You, if your wisdom is contrary to God, your wisdom's not wisdom. And he quotes Job and then he quotes a Psalm here. To drive home uh, this idea that uh, God is way smarter than us. God, uh, so every, every time we have to subordinate our understanding to God's understanding. It's possible to be self-deceived. You know, I, it aggravates me to be deceived by somebody else. You know, to have someone misrepresent things and lie to me and me find out later. You know. But the worst possible thing is to believe my own nonsense. To have an incorrect view of the world that I have imposed on myself. And that's what the Bible says. Don't be self-deceived. It takes humility and willingness to acknowledge that we're off track. And sometimes we get off track. And particularly in the way that it talks about here. Remember when David made a mess out of his relationships. He had to finally be confronted by the prophet Nathan. Who uses... Uh, illustration to trick David into saying that person deserves this and that person deserves that and then Nathan says hey David you're that person you're the man who's messed everything up and then David comes to himself and he wrote psalms about it psalm 32 psalm 51 
And here's what he said when he was recovering in his relationships. Some of them are very difficult to ever recover. But recovering in his relationship with God, he said, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He says, this is, what, this is all I know to bring, God. I messed everything up. I'm just coming and telling you the truth. And, and he says, I know you won't despise. Why? Because it's honest? Because God loves honesty? Because he, he's not afraid of the mess we've made of things? Because it pleases God to help you put it back together? That's why. So David says, I don't want to be self-deceived. I don't want to live a lie. I want it to be right. And so, this passage says, anybody trying to match with wits with God is way out, outmatched because God created your wits. You think you're smarter than God? No. He created you. He made everything. He's the author of truth. And the best thing any of us can do is to consistently surrender. And live a repentant life all the time. Just keep uh, dealing with the stuff that's out of, off course and uh, disobedient. Just keep bringing it to God and say, God, I've messed this up. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. That's his promise in uh, 1 John 1, 9. Keep a a penitent heart. Change my heart, O God. Make it... uh, ever know let it be like you that's a good prayer i'm an open book that you can read you point the things out that need to be different and my responsibility is to repent and to make it what god wants it to be the lord knows look at verse 20 there again the lord knows the thoughts of the the uh the wise that they're futile but the lord knows and that's a, a good thing to remember People are fickle and finite, imperfect, deeply flawed. If we don't keep a humble attitude, we're prone to mess things up. Or we're prone to mess things up anyway. Uh, Paul Simon, the uh, recording artist, said, We don't mean to mess things up, but mess them up we do. That's what we do. We mess things up. So the only right thing to do is to keep an attitude of humility. Let no one be deceived. We're living a deception anytime we think we can practice behaviors that treat other believers contemptibly and as non-persons, which is what we do when we fortify ourselves into any little subgroup. We belong to this group. We belong to that group. God says, no, not interested in that at all. What I really want is to make you one bring you all together, that you know each other, that you live uh, together in community, that you keep working at that. That's the context in this passage. Thirdly, connection illustrates that we belong to God. This is such a powerful promise. He's like, you're arguing about these people, Apollos and Paul, says the reality is I've given you everything. It doesn't have to be translated to you through other people. I've given it to you. I've made it your property because you're part of my body. Everybody has access to the same God. That's the beauty of what the scripture teaches. Every person who truly knows God 
has access to God. I mean, I'm grateful to help anybody as a teacher, a spiritual counselor, leader. But the truth is, you can pray directly to God and He'll answer you directly. You can read directly in His Word. He'll give you an answer from His Word. It's, it's the great reality of what it means to belong to God. Is that He says, when you belong to me, I've given everything that I have to you right then. It all belongs to you. Uh, one commentator thinking about this passage says, all attempts to appeal to some human leader to want to belong to some superior spiritual group misses the glorious light of the gospel. In the wisdom of God in Christ, everything that has been done for God's people has been done, uh, done with them in mind from start to finish. That's what he means when he says all things are yours. You've got access to it. So there, there's no reason that, there's no popularity, like there's no pecking order here. There's no click. God just pushes all that stuff away. He says, everybody is the same. Everybody identifies with the same Jesus. And he's who makes everybody somebody. There is no nobody. Everybody's somebody because God made us all somebody. And he says, this is what I'm trying to form among you. This is the reality I'm, I, I have come to affect. Everybody's somebody. You're a kingdom of priests. That's what God says. You are a kingdom of priests. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You can read it for yourself. So you're a priest, now I'm a priest. <laughs> God made us, each and every one, a holy priesthood. We, and it's part of our belonging. We've all shared in the most important reality, which is God's gift of Christ, if we have shared in that reality. And that's the you know, most important question in life. Have I taken to myself through surrender and faith this gift of Jesus? It's a free, he is a free gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He is our God's free gift to us to bring us into family, to make us part of his family. Whoever receives him, to them he gave the authority to be called children of God. There's the receiving him part though. That at some point our, our will is subordinated. We surrender. We say, yes, God, I know that my... Uh, life has been alienated from you because of my sin, but I also know that you love me and paid for my sin debt. Dying on a cross, being raised from the dead as evidence that you had conquered sin and hell and death. And we say yes to him. And then we belong to God. That's what the scripture says when we say yes. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I remember just feeling like my life was in a desperate place. Even if you don't feel desperate, your life is in a desperate place without Jesus. But I knew that I was in a desperate place. And, and my mother, when I was 24 years old, I sat down at her table. I had uh, gone to spend some time with them. And, man, it was humbling to be able to say, I'm failing. I'm failing at life 
<laughs> that was what I was doing. I was failing at life. I need help. I'm willing to humble myself. And my mother, when I was 24 years of age, led me to say, help God. Help God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my life began to be different. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit comes in. He begins to make your life different. And it's supernatural, and I can't fully explain it. I just know that my desperation and need intersected with God's willingness. And he saved me, delivered me, is delivering me day by day. So all who belong to God uh, have become partners in experiencing his grace and kindness and mercy. And he puts us into family. Jesus' high priestly prayer, which you find in the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 17, says, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus praying uh, for you. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may listen to what he's praying for. All be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, he says. Why is it so important for them to represent us as this temple that the world, when they look, sees them together? He says, I want them to be one because when, when they're one, then the world can believe that you sent me. The impediment of confusion and disunity is taken out of the picture. So our collective witness is that community can be supernatural. That's what God says. Community can be supernatural. It can have the divine imprint upon it. And of course we're part of that. Our will is or else there wouldn't be a thread in this passage. Frankly, that's why there's a thread in this passage is because your will is involved in this. How you decide to be, who you decide to be in community with other people. So, we have the privilege of being ambassadors of Jesus. We're ambassadors, representatives. That's exactly what Jesus says here in this passage, that what we do together matters. So, partisan behavior, sectarian, divisive uh, behavior communicates to a watching world that God doesn't really change anything. If belonging to Jesus doesn't result in tearing down of walls, whether they're walls of race, whether they're uh, walls of uh, judgment, uh, whether they're the walls that come because of class or personality, if being in Christ doesn't result in tearing those things down, then this is no different than middle school. No different than my high school homeroom. No different than the world. So when God unites us, it is to model what grace does in a human personality. When he brings us into the church, that's what he's doing. He's modeling what it means when grace transforms a human personality. It creates acceptance and openness And, you know, I thought about that. Acceptance of everything? No. Of course not. 
but a Christ-like working toward redemptive ends in everything. Which means that a person can come to this congregation with the depth of sin and stuckness. That's where God met me. And we would say, I don't accept that sin is the right posture, place that God wants your life, but I accept you, I love you, and I'm going to try to minister the gospel to you, to anybody. That, to show that this is what grace does in the human personality. I love the chorus, I was mentioning this earlier to someone, that we used to sing, kind of country western, traditional kind of chorus that said, bind us together. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together in love. There's only one God. There's only one king. There's only one body. It said, that's why we sing. Bind us together. And I think that's the heart of this passage today. That God wants us to understand what the the, uh, temple of God really is. Doesn't have a spire on top of it. It might be wearing a hat, you know. But it's us together. God says, you, you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You belong to me. And I want you to be a unique witness in how you are. I want to pray for us and we're going to have a song as we conclude our service today. And I'm going to stand here in the front for a few moments as we sing. And if there's a prayer need, a way that I can pray with you, I'll be happy to do that. I'll also be happy to pray for you later when it's quiet and or if you want to come by and meet and talk with me or any of our elders or leaders or somebody you know different or better than me. But I think it's important for us to uh, listen and to, and to respond in obedience in ways that God is showing us. But let's pray. God, I'm grateful for the scripture today and the truth that it reveals and how it shows us that you love people. God, that you're for people and that you want us to be part of your family. And, of course, that means repentance and faith. And, and I pray today that for anyone as they listen that you'll break down that wall and give them freedom to just say yes to your incredible offer of grace in the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray for others of us, God, as we think about our life, if there's malice or hardness in our heart toward others, that you'll help us to work that out and ways that give uh, freedom in our relationships and bless this body, God, that it can witness to you of what community really looks like. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?